As Nathan mentioned, uh, Josh is unwell this morning and is not able to be here. Uh, but we have Matt Vanderleek here from Red Deer. Uh, he's from City Chapel in Red Deer, if any of you guys are familiar with that. Um, but yeah, Matt and Stephanie and three of their four boys are with us this morning. Um, so we look forward to meeting you and chatting with you a bit more after the service. Um, but it's good to have them here. He is going to be speaking from Romans 1, uh, verses 1 to 7. Um, so I'm just going to read that, and then we'll pray before he comes. So Romans 1, uh, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through, the prophets, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we, we come to you this morning as your people. Um, we remember that we are weak. God, many of us um, have went through sickness. God, this week um, we, have, we have loved things that we should not and neglected you. We have tried to find joy and satisfaction um, in places that will not fulfill all the while neglecting you, the giver of life and all joy. But God, this morning we, we remember the resurrection. We remember that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so our weak and feeble bodies and our weak and feeble souls that, that do not remember and love you like they should, God, we remember that because Jesus rose from the dead, um, we also have life. And like Mark mentioned earlier, we are no longer slaves to sin, um, but we get to walk um, in the newness of life simply because you are a gracious God who has given to us what we could not earn or we could not achieve on our own. So God, I just pray, I pray you'd give Matt um, great clarity and boldness um, just to, to speak um, the words of your gospel. Um, to speak um, from your word this morning in a way that we'd be built up um, and in a way that we would remember um, what is truly most important um, and that, yeah, we would grow through, grow through his word, um, what, what you have spoken by your word um, through him to us this morning. So this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you. Um, there are times I... I feel like Xander, where uh, <clears throat> standing up here in front of everybody, just trying to get away, and my heavenly Father's holding me, <laughs> holding me back. Um, but what a beautiful picture uh, this morning as we come to God's Word. So, I want to start uh, by just telling you, I am intrigued by telemarketers. 
Uh, like a typical millennial that I am, I don't enjoy surprise phone calls, especially from strangers. So when a telemarketer calls me, I immediately want to hang up, like, like they tricked me to answering the phone. Uh, but they always have that, that hook. Hello, Mr. Vanderleek. I have great news for you today, my friend. And now I'm on a, the horns of a dilemma. They know my name. Apparently, we're already friends. And they have great news for me. Well, now I kind of have to listen. I stand before you today to bring you greetings as a friend. But unlike a telemarketer, I'm not here uh, to sell you something or to pretend that it is good news. I stand before you with a desire to share with the greatest news in all of human history. And it's not something that's for sale, it's something that is offered freely and it's already been paid for, yet it will cost you everything. So as already introduced, my name is Matt Vanderleek, and I am one of the pastors or elders, we use that, that term synonymously at City Chapel in Red Deer, and uh, I bring you greetings from your sister congregation, and uh, it is a, a joy and a privilege and an honor uh, to be here before you today and to proclaim the word of the Lord to you. And uh, seeing as you don't know me, uh, I figured it would be appropriate to come with with a greeting text. So we're examining Paul's greeting to the Romans together, as, as Craig read for us this morning. And as we look at Paul's greeting, I want to unpack with you four areas where God's good news changes us. Four areas where the gospel of God, as he, he says, words it, shows us something better than we ever imagined or ever dared hope for. And so the first area that I want to highlight to you is the gospel of God shows us a true and better identity. All 16 chapters in the book of Romans, what we refer to as a book, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. And it's typical for the author to state right away their identity, who they are, and their their credentials, their qualifications, why they have the, the ability to write to this group of people, and then to indicate to whom it is addressed. But Paul appeals not to his own authority, but to the authority of Jesus Christ. And he models his greeting more in the form of, of a town crier, or a herald, or a messenger, these are the kinds of men who would come into town and the importance of what they had to say was not so much, in fact, not at all based on who they were, but it's rather based on whose behalf they spoke. So in this way, those receiving a message were to receive it as though it was coming from the king, the one who gave the words to be delivered. And then the messenger, it was his responsibility simply to unpack in fullness and in clarity the message of the king for those to whom it was intended. Now bear in mind, this is a, a stark contrast to how Paul, or Saul as he was, was then known, uh, would have operated in the past. He is a Roman citizen by birth, a man uh, of Tarsus which was a very affluent and intellectual area. 
He was well educated in Hellenistic or Greek thought. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, Paul is in Athens and he demonstrates incredible knowledge about Greek paganism and Greek thought and Greek philosophy. Yet the crown jewel of his intellect was not, or it was his religious studies of the Mosaic Law. And he says this about himself in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Pharisee greetings, when they were writing a letter, especially one so prominent and elite like Saul of Tarsus, would have started his letter something more like this. Saul, a rabbi of the Holy Scriptures and the Law of Moses. As a professional of the Scriptures and the Law, Saul, Saul would have extended three things. First, that he was set apart from the common people. He was different. Pharisees liked to keep their distance from these people. They, they lived at a distance. They operated at a distance. And if you remember, if you're familiar with, with the Scriptures and with the stories of Jesus, they would remark on the company that Jesus kept, or that he would dare to eat with sinners and tax collectors. Who would eat and drink with such vile persons? Second, he, as a Pharisee, would never, ever, ever waste his time teaching Gentiles. The Lord had chosen his nation of Israel, his people, their birthright. It was a full-time job teaching and instructing and judging these people according to the law and to purge the evil and the sin that was amongst them and to keep them as a, a nation set apart to God. He had nothing to do with the Gentile world except to cast out those who were perpetual in sin to go and, and be among them. And then third... He was positioned in authority by fortunate birth and great effort. Most people in antiquity were illiterate. They, they could not read. They didn't understand uh, writings and, and uh, writing material was very scarce. And so they, common people would learn the family trade and they would learn how to, to perform a task, but they could not read or write. And those who were affluent, those who, who had, had money, they had the privilege of being educated. They had the privilege of, of having at their disposal these very rare writing and reading uh, items. And to be one of these few, they bore a responsibility of reading and writing and teaching to the illiterate people. And so there is this intermingling of Paul's identity, where he recognized this privilege that he had and, and took seriously his responsibility. And he applied himself greatly to his work. And as a Roman trained in Hellenistic thinking, Greek, Greek teaching, the whole world was open to him as a young man. 
And he chose to join with the Pharisees, to study the Mosaic law and to subject himself to it. While his schoolmates perhaps went off to Athens or to Rome and to enjoy the spoils of vanity and worldliness with loose living and and fulfilling the, the desires of the flesh, Paul applies himself to spiritual things and denies much of his uh, physical desires. And it would have been easy for him in this, this state as a Pharisee to justify to himself just how good he was, how much he had given up, how, how holy he was, how humble he was to take this position to serve the people of God. How much he had sacrificed for the Lord, that he could have been whatever he wanted and he chose to be this. How zealous he was to defend God's good name, that he was even persecuting those who he believed had fallen away. And when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, imagine then the shock that he must have felt. In all these areas, he thought he was doing so well. He thought he was such a good model. He thought he was showing the people what godliness looked like. And here, the God of the Bible comes to him and shows him that he's actually doing all of this in selfishness. That he's actually no better off than potentially those schoolmates in, in their sinning and pursuing worldly things. The difference is that he's just sinning differently than they are. How crippling might it be for one who is on the mountain of being, as he says, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to realize that he deserves the wrath of God. To go from believing that he is defending the name and the honor of Yahweh to realizing he's actually opposing him and making war against him. So when he comes to this letter to the Romans, primarily to Gentiles, and he does so now as a servant, or that word could be also uh, translated slave, Slave to Jesus Christ, one who is so completely at the disposal and will of his Lord and Master. And he writes as one, not who has earned this position, but as one who is called by God as he calls his slaves to task. And he writes as one now who is set apart for the gospel of God. And that word, if if you're someone who highlights or underlines your Bible... Underline that. Gospel of God. This is an important phrase here in this text. Not only that, that he won't associate with sinners, but on the contrary, that he now seeks them out. That he would reflect the very light of Christ that, that rocked him on the road to Damascus and, and reflect this light to the darkest recesses of the world where the most vile People desperately need to hear the good news proclaimed. And so the gospel shows us our true and better identity. That it's not found in ourselves and what we have done, but in relation to Christ and what He has done. 
Just as Craig prayed for us this morning that we pursue these wrongful things and we come back and we come to the gospel and it's all about what Jesus has done for us and our identity is in him. Now for some of us this morning, this may knock us off our high horse like it did to Paul. And for others of us, this may lift us out of the valley of shame that we have refused to leave. That it's not about what we've done, it's about what Jesus has done. Second, the gospel of God shows us a true and better representative. Now as a Pharisee, Paul or Saul would have appealed uh, to himself. He, he could look, for example, at the Ten Commandments and, and say, I have kept all of these. I have done what they tell me to do and I have not done what they tell me to avoid. But he was also aware that there were more than just Ten Commandments. In the Old Testament law, there were 613 commands. How to prepare certain meals. How to wash your hands. How to, uh, what type of animal you would sacrifice to the Lord on certain days for certain tasks, for certain things. How many steps you could take on the Sabbath day. How much of your increase you were to offer to the Lord. And Paul's just going down the list. Check, 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 check. Not only did he keep them himself, but he also ruled over the people in such a way that he helped them keep it as well. Your father passed away in your home? Oh, brother, I'm sorry for your loss. But you're going to have to go grieve outside of the camp because you, you touched a corpse. Are you nearing your time of month, ma'am? Well, pack your bags. You are also going outside of the camp. Ah, another goat being brought to the priest for a sin offering. Hey, Hezekiah, man, you've got to learn to control yourself, you rotten sinner. As a Pharisee, Paul was confident in his ability to represent himself before God and, and to call out these other people to keep the law. And some of these other people, they're, they're hopeless. They don't stand a chance. And others are not taking it seriously at all. And this is driving the Pharisee crazy. Now whether Saul felt compassion on these people or not, and given the attitude and the charges that Jesus laid upon the Pharisees as a whole, I'm willing to say that, that it's, it's a safe bet he didn't. But Paul believed that it was, it, it was going to happen to every one of us to stand in judgment before God. And he firmly believed that he was doing so much better than all of these others. And that just in regards to that, he's going to be fine. How Paul's view changed when he met Jesus. As a Pharisee, there, there would have been very few folks with more knowledge in the Scriptures than he had. But without the work of regeneration, he could only view the Scriptures in a certain way. He was blinded to the truth of the Gospel. It wasn't illuminated to him. He studied them and he spent times with, with them and he saw that the rules that were to be obeyed 
do this and you shall live, do this and you shall die. But now as Paul is regenerate in the gospel, things take on a fresh new meaning again. Like Jesus said in John 5 verse 39 to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Paul came to a reality check on the road to Damascus that he was, he was reading the scriptures, he was taking them seriously, he was trying to model his life in accordance with it, but he was doing it all without the gospel. He was doing it all without Christ. It was just him. The Pharisees knew that there was a problem. They knew that something in us is broken. Something wants to dive into sin. To plunge deeper and deeper. That that we need a tether. We need a lifeline. We need a guide to to hold us back was the, the view. And so they looked at Scripture as this rule book. And he thought that he was good, he was okay because he kept the rules and he took pride in it. The trouble is, what happens when you take pride in your own obedience, you become the standard. If, if we're parking our, our cars in the parking lot and I park my car in first and, and you can imagine a nice paved, brand new paved lot with the yellow lines everywhere, And I park my car in very squarely between the lines. It fits in perfectly like it's supposed to. And then I stand back and I'm proud of myself for such a fine parking job that I did. And then you you come in and you you pull in beside me and, and you're not quite as square. There's a little more room on the left side than than on the right. You're a little crooked with the lines, maybe the nose of your car crept up past. That, that front line. So it's okay. It's passable. No one's going to give you a ticket. Uh, but it's not quite as good as mine. And, and my pride is noticing this. And as you walk up to meet me, maybe we're, we're meeting for coffee, and, and you go to shake my hand, and all I can notice is that your park job isn't quite as good as mine. It, it's not meeting expectations. And then you'll notice what I'm not seeing is the person in front of me. I see a bad park job. And I'm heartless towards the person because of their, what I'm perceiving as a bad park job. And then I tell you, Scripture says that God cares about order. And you have brought disorder to the parking lot by the way you parked. You'll never get to heaven unless you learn to park like me. Now, does Scripture say anything about how we park our cars? No. I've just heaped up more burden and rules upon you. Look with me again back at at verse 2 of Romans 1, where it says, He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. The humanly unsolvable issue for humanity is that we are all sinners. 
Every one of us, by nature and by choice, are sinners. The late R.C. Sproul once said, We are not sinners because we have sinned. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. We are sinners. No amount of square parking in parking lots is going to absolve me of that. Jesus makes atonement for us, not by giving us new rules to live by, but by cleansing us. I deserve God's wrath. I do. And so do you. And if God were to just look away and say, you know, I've decided to love you. I'm going to pretend that didn't happen. It's okay. Well, now he's not just... And he's not good. But he he is these things. So in order to make atonement, a human had to come and substitute. He had to be perfect. He would have to keep the law perfectly. But if he did that, it would only gain him entrance by his own merit. Now if he took on the wrath of God that was due for another, then he could substitute But the problem is, no human could bear the weight of God's wrath. Only God could take the wrath of God and survive in order to endure the fullness of it. And so Jesus comes, and Paul is is telling us here in this text, in this greeting, he's he's packed these truths into this, this greeting to the Romans. That Jesus comes according to the flesh, a descendant of David. That this points out he has an earthly lineage, a family line. It's, it's the equivalent of saying born of Mary or, or son of Joseph. Here we have the son of David. But in the same sentence, actually it's all one big sentence, thanks Paul. Uh, but in the same little section, he also says, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. That he is not only man, but he is God. Truly man, truly God. And this, Paul says, is who all of Scripture points to. The things that he was missing as a Pharisee. That the Old Testament Scriptures, the prophets, all pointed to Jesus. And now the apostles in the New Testament, that these all were God's chosen mouthpiece to declare these things, to say that it was so. And so we don't stand before God to represent ourselves, to enter in our plea before Him. If we did, it would always be guilty. So don't waste your time trying to park your car between the lines. Just look to Jesus. He is our representative. That when the Father looks at us, He he sees Jesus. And that Jesus covers over all of those who are in Him. And He says, perfect. He's extended His righteousness to you and taken uh, taken your sin on Himself. The gospel shows us that Jesus is our true and better representative. Thirdly, the gospel of God shows us true and better obedience. 
Now let's be intellectually honest. This religious system that Paul was a part of as a Pharisee, they upheld the law for a very long time. In fact, they were so concerned about upholding the law that, that they made new laws that if people could, would operate within their laws, they wouldn't even come close to breaking God's law. And so they were restricting the pleasures of the flesh and they're burdening people with requirements and they're really good at upholding a strong sense of legality. And if I'm honest with you, this is my natural tendency. And perhaps some of you are the same. I work very hard to follow the instructions because it, it's just what's right. I want to be a, a positive contributor to society. I, I want to obey the traffic laws. If you drive too fast, it's dangerous. If you drive too slow, it's inconsiderate. When someone isn't doing the things the way that I have learned that it's right, then I began to pass judgment believing that it's wrong. And I don't think that Paul, to try to be courteous to him, started out as a Pharisee with any intention to disobey God. In fact, quite the opposite, he believed honestly that everything he was doing was for God. And the more he did, the more the religious elites kept patting him on the back. You're doing great. Good job. And the more he rose through the ranks, the more he believed that he was doing right. And so we can have some sympathy for this, this Pharisee for a moment. As I hinted at, imagine the devastation if Jesus hadn't grabbed a hold of him, of 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 him, of a Pharisee coming into God's courtroom full of confidence in everything that he's done. All the effort that he's put in, all of the work that he's put in, everything he feels like he has sacrificed. And then to hear the words from his creator looking at him and saying, guilty. To hear that, that the reward for all of his labor was already given to him in, in the prestige and the honor that he enjoyed on earth. And to learn that the restrictions that he placed on people, believing in a sense that, that he was trying to point them towards God, trying to help them love God, was actually devastating people. And he was guilty of making them victims. For some of you, maybe you've experienced this. Maybe on the, the, the part of, of being that guy. Or maybe on the part of, of having those weights put on you. Or maybe to a degree both. And for others, maybe you haven't experienced this. But let me give you a simple illustration. Let's say that you got a labor job. And you're hauling bags of cement. 50 pound bags. From the ground floor of a building up, up to the top floor that's being built. There's no elevator. You're walking up the stairs. It's hard work, but it promises to pay well. And so you're, you're, you're putting in this, this sweat. You're, you're working hard. You put in these two weeks. Your arms are sore. Your feet are blistered and swollen. Uh, you've lost all sorts of weight from, from this uh, some of it may be good, some of it just water weights because you can't, you can't maintain. 
And you can't wait for the weekend just so you can rest your feet and relax. And then you, you come to your bank account and you expect to see your boss has promised $3,000. And when you enter in to get the balance, it makes your head spin. Because instead of a paycheck, there's a bill there. You moved, let's say, 200 bags of cement per day for two weeks. And every time you set them down, you broke a bag. It resulted in moisture getting in and and ruining the bag. They estimate 2,000 bags of cement have been ruined by you. All that work you did actually attributing to your demise. Every bag you worked for actually cost you. As part of your contract, you're liable for any and all damages, and, and you signed that. So not only are you not getting paid, but you owe $20,000 for the cement. It gets worse. They tried mixing these bags that you brought up. It ruined three concrete mixers worth $100,000 each. And then to top it all off, some of the spoiled cement was actually used in the concrete foundation of a wall which failed. Three workers were injured and are suing you directly as is the building company, for ruining the building. And if you can't pay, you have to work off your debt. And it's estimated to take you 630 years at your current rate. This is not good news. This is not gospel, which is what gospel means, good news. In order to be good news, and for, in order for it to be good... Though we need to see and understand the bad news. If like Paul, we believe that we are blameless before the law, why would we need a Savior? I've got it. I have it handled. I'm good. I've got $3,000 in my bank account. We need to come to an understanding of the truth. And, and here it is. And I say this in love. Rose City Church, I am far worse than you realize. If you could open up my closets and and see the skeletons in there, you would run me off this stage. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I don't stand here before you in, in my own power or my own strength or with my resume. I only stand before you by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And likewise, every one of you is far worse Then you realize. But what is good news for all of us is here in verse 5. Through Jesus Christ we have received grace, praise the Lord, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has stirred in us faith. It's it's a gift to every one of God's people. And faith produces in us obedience. We obey because of the work that He is doing in us. It's not that our obedience has mustered up this ability in us to believe, to have faith. And yet the more we obey in faith, the more it strengthens our faith. And this magnifies the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So the gospel shows us a true and better obedience than what what 
Paul believed as a Pharisee to what now he's proclaiming. That it is the good fruit of what God is doing in and through us. And that leads me to our final point. That the gospel of God shows us a true and better view of God. So to, to pull us back to our illustration, you have 630 years worth of debt to pay off. Far more than any one of us would ever be able to pay back in one lifetime. And just for fun, let's add on top of all of this a measly 2% interest rate annually. Which means for every year that you work to try to pay this off, you accumulate another 12.6 years on top. You are never going to pay this off. The longer you keep at it, the more debt you grow. It's hopeless. But now Jesus comes. And he says to you, it's okay. I paid it. I've paid it all. I replaced the equipment. I rebuilt the wall. I removed all the tainted cement from the concrete. I, I have replenished the stock and more. And he hands you a slip of paper and it's got all of your debts detailed in it and it says across it, paid in full in blood. Jesus Christ gave his life for his sheep because he loves you. Let's look, uh, look back at, at... Nope, let's keep moving on. <laughs> the gospel of God is told to us through the prophets and the holy scriptures. Right, which we see in verse uh, 1. God the Father first announced to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that Jesus would be coming. They had sinned, and God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Throughout the, the entirety of the Old Testament, God keeps promising, watch for my son. He's coming. The narrative of obedience, sin, redemption, restoration is spoken again and again through the Old Testament narrative. And we see this with the people that, that God loves. Not because they're lovely, but he loves them and he continues to cleanse them and wash them and restore them. And all of these things are pointing to Jesus. God the Father is a proud Father speaking of His Son. And the Son comes and it's, He is the exact imprint of God. Nature is God's creation and it does testify about Him as a Creator. Scripture is God's Word and it does tell us who He is. These things all testify to God but it's, it's incomplete. You want to really know who God is. You want to know what he looks like. You look to Jesus. Jesus in scripture. Jesus in nature. He is the exact imprint of who God is. And Paul draws our attention in this lengthy sentence. In his greeting to this distinction of father, son, and spirit in this text. The fact that our God is triune is more than just a doctrinal position that, that a bunch of theologians have got together and agreed this is something that is important that we need to tell people. As a Pharisee, Paul thought 
that his obedience was the root and that salvation was the fruit that if, as he continued to pour into, to, to water and, and to grow this seed that he had started of obedience, that it's going to give birth and give fruit to salvation. But that's not the character of God and it's not the work of God that Scripture continues to point us to. That obedience of faith comes because we have a, a true and better view of God. Because we can't obey in order to be saved. We just keep adding to our debt load. It's like working off one more year. And 12 years is put on top. But God is a God of redemption who pays off our debt. (laughs) While we were still sinners, Romans later says. We weren't looking for Him. We weren't pleading for Him. We weren't trying to, to go after Him. The Holy Spirit opens up our eyes and gives us true sight. That Jesus Christ has kept the law in its fullness for us. And not in the same way that that Paul thought that he had kept the law. In a true way. But not only that, he paid the penalty that we all deserved. He did everything it commanded and took on all of the curses. For us. For you and for me. If you are in Christ. And if that's true, then verse 6 points us to the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. And so your obedience comes not not because you're trying to earn His love, because He's already given it to you. Not so that you might have a, a higher position. It's got nothing to do with, with you except that it magnifies Christ. Because He loves you. But it's not started in you. The root of the gospel is Jesus. Jesus saves sinners. It, he said on the cross, it's, it is finished. It's done. It's over. And the fruit of the gospel, the fruit that comes from that root, is that sinners are forgiven and restored. It becomes our deepest desire then as we partake in the fruit of that to walk away from sin. Not because we want to earn salvation, but because he's already given it. To follow after him in obedience. Like Paul, we can count all our gain as loss for the sake of being a slave to Christ. That we no longer come with, these are my credentials, this is who I am, this is what you need to know about me. You say, I'm a slave to Jesus, that's all I got. Because slavery to Christ is far better, far more freeing, far more secure than being a Pharisee of Pharisees. Our view of God is not someone who is just keeping score and tallying good things versus bad things. It's not this view of of God that's that's capricious and mean. That this day he might do this, this day he might do this. Hopefully you catch him on a good day. He's the one who saved us when we were completely hopeless. He's the one who has given us eyes to see. He's the one who has brought us to life anew. He's the one that shows us that this life matters and the next life matters. And the good news is good when we realize, and especially as we realize, how bad and how hopeless we really are without him. And then our affection for him grows in seeing what he has done for us so that our hearts are ablaze with love for God. 
and awe and wonder and a desire to do what honors him because of how he has poured himself out for us. The gospel shows us a true and better view of God because the gospel is all about Jesus. And this is really good news for us. Let's close our time by turning to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and loving Father, Lord, I thank you that you do not give us what we deserve. I thank you for your word, for truth, for Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be doers of your word because our eyes are fixed on Jesus and what he has done. And as we have heard from this stage this morning already in in prayer and in song, that we would follow him. I pray that our obedience would stem from faith and a desire to honor you and not out of just an empty belief that we might pull ourselves up. I pray that we would see ourselves as broken sinners. That we all need you. And that what we have to do is just turn to you acknowledging that you, Jesus, have done it all. We can add nothing to your finished work. But what a pleasure it is to follow after you and what a joy that is. Would you propel us in obedience simply because we want to please you, our Lord, our God, our King, our Savior. And I pray all of this for your glory and for our joy. Lord, I pray that you would bless this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.